welcome to the Alliance Podcast, Continuing Conversations. My name is Morgan Mangara, Content Manager for The Almanac, the online publication for The Alliance. In this episode, we continue Dr. Brian McGowan's Legends Interview Series with featured guest, Dr. Carol Havens. Listen as Dr. Havens shares how she got her serendipitous start in the medical field and discusses her career in family, geriatric, and addiction medicine, and on to continuing education. If you like what you hear today, subscribe or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We are joined today with Dr. Carol Sue Havens. Dr. Havens, can I call you Carol? Uh, please, and leave out the middle name. I promise, unless you get in trouble. That's what Don Moore taught me once. That's, that's what my mother did. All right, Carol, thank you for joining us. So let's go back in time and hear a Midwest girl, not too far from home, but somehow from your early training in the Midwest, you end up on the West Coast. Can you actually take us from your even even college training up through your medical training? Just give us a, a sneak peek. Sure. So I did my undergraduate work at Michigan State. I grew up in Missouri, but I went to Michigan State for my undergraduate work and where I majored in medical technology and planned on being a med tech. And then that serendipity will be the theme of my story. And so when I was taking one of my classes, my medical technology classes, I thought, gee, what I'd really like to do is medical research. And because I grew up in a, in a very small farming community in Missouri, there was never an option for girls to do anything but be a teacher or a nurse or a secretary or, most importantly, a homemaker. So being a physician just never was in my consciousness at all. I mean, I don't remember consciously even thinking about it. But when I was in college, I started thinking maybe I could do medical research because I thought that would be fun and challenging. And so I asked one of my professors if I wanted to do medical research, what's the best way to prepare? And she said, go to medical school. And I said, what? And she said, the only way to do medical research in this country is to get grants. And as a physician, you will be able to get grants much more readily than if you're not. And I said, okay, I'll go to medical school then. And I, I, I don't know what's the smallest amount of time that can be measured, but whatever that smallest amount of time was, was the leap was, wait a second, if I'm going to go to medical school, I'd rather actually be a physician than be a researcher. And so that was late in my college career. So I spent a year at the University of Arizona in graduate school in in microbiology and applied to the University of Arizona Medical School and got accepted. I ended up there and then matched for my residency in family medicine in Sacramento and have stayed on the West Coast ever since. Having never considered, I I knew I was going to be a physician from the time I was six (laughs) years old. I also white male privilege, right? It was just, it was obvious to me, like there was nothing that was going to stand in my way. And I'm a fam- Irish Catholic family. We have nuns and priests all over. So I specifically was going to be the team surgeon for Notre Dame's football program. And I'm a larger individual. And so I knew that after I retired, this is, this is how easy it is to conceive of one's future when you see people who have that same future as you. I'll circle back to that question in a second, but I knew that after I practiced in medicine for years and years that I'd eventually become a professional wrestler, right? Who, who That's happened to be the opposite way, physician. isn't it? Well, like I, don't you usually start in wrestling and then go to medicine. Again, school? I was seven, Carol. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And, and so my, I, I, it, it's very interesting to me from the time I was seven until I was 19, 
there was only one future for me. And from the time you were seven until you were 19, there was only one future for you. And just how, man, did we all benefit from that one teacher saying that one thing to you? Like just introspectively, how great do you think things turned out? I feel incredibly lucky to have had the career that I've had. And you're right. I think it really speaks to how none of us really knows what one conversation, which to us may be no big deal, can be so meaningful for somebody else. And you're absolutely right. That one conversation, it was literally at the front of the classroom after class one day. It was probably a throwaway comment on her part. And here I am 40 years later. Um, and I, I've often thought I should go back and say, do you, do you know what you did with that one comment? But I, I never have, unfortunately. That's, that is so great. So let's peel the onion, the layers back a little bit more. So Midwest to Arizona, warm weather inclination. <laughs> I, 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 I've, I've often thought if there was a place to go to medical school, it would either be, and, and it, w- it would either be Arizona or be Hawaii. I figured like they'd be two good places if you're going to train. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, uh, actually, and I probably had the, uh, coming from Michigan to Arizona, I probably had the biggest collection of sweaters in the entire state. And, and I, I marveled. It actually snowed when I was in Tucson, when I was in graduate school, first time it snowed there in like a hundred years. And I was out running around in the snow in a t-shirt and everybody else was, you know, wrapped up in down comforters. It's like, it's not that cold people. But anyway, no, my, my, my parents moved out of Missouri to Oklahoma the day after I graduated from high school and then subsequently moved to Arizona. And so after I graduated from college and decided to start graduate school, I ended up back in Arizona because that's where my folks were. So I could live with them. Only I didn't, but I, um, but I moved, moved to Arizona. So in my conversation with Dave Davis, his practice career and his educational professional career started within weeks of each other. He tells this story of joining a practice and within a week or two of joining the practice, he ended up at a two or three day seminar at which absolutely nothing he learned was relevant to him. And he came back and said, thank God I have my partners and a network to support me. And he just started to almost obsess on how other people would develop that lifelong learning network around them. And that begat his career. And so they, they basically moved in parallel. Can you walk us through post-residency? You're, you're on a normal clinician track or do you quickly grasp that clinician educator track? No, Dave is much smarter than I am and came to these realizations much faster than I did. So, but I have, you know, again, from my early days when career choices were limited for women, I always wanted to be a teacher and I had fully anticipated. In fact, when I, when I started college, I figured I'd be a math teacher because I loved math and figured that's, I didn't want to be a nurse and I didn't want to be a secretary. So my other choice was teacher. So So when I graduated, when I finished my residency, yeah, I was just on a clinician track. I I loved practicing. I loved family medicine. But my first job out of residency was on the faculty at the University of Nevada, Reno, in their family medicine department, because I thought, what a great, what a great combination. I can practice and I can be involved in education. And it only took me a year or part of a year to realize academia was not a good fit for me. I'm not a politician. 
And there was a lot of politics involved. And I said, this is, and, and Reno, frankly, was not a, at the time was not a great place for me to practice. So that was my last attempt at academia. So then I, I went back to Sacramento where I joined Kaiser. And at the time in Sacramento was where I joined, but they were building a new hospital in South Sacramento, which was like 15 miles South of Sacramento. And they said, when they hired me, they said, when we open the hospital, if we don't get enough volunteers to go, you'll be transferring to the South Sac facility. And I said, okay. So that's what I did. When they opened it about 15 months later, I transferred down to the South Sacramento facility where we had clinic for a couple of years before the hospital opened. Then the hospital opened and, you know, hospitals have a million committees that have to be staffed. And there were something like 25 physicians total at the hospital at the time. And so they came to all of us and said, all of you are going to be on a committee at least one, pick one. And here's the list of all of them. And I, I thought, oh, what I really want to do is education because I'd actually been involved on the CME committee in, in Sacramento. So I volunteered to be chair of the CME committee at the new South Sac facility. And I was selected, which was, which was great. And that's where it all started and fell in love with it. So we'll certainly spend a lot of time on the education world. I, I just, for context, and I think this is so critical, you practiced in family medicine. I did. Principally. And then eventually took a slightly different view of practice. And then was that addiction medicine? Well, there was a, there was a, a turn in the middle, but yeah, I, I I loved family medicine and loved education, and at some point thought I ought to expand my horizons. And my parents were getting older at the time, so I studied geriatrics and got certified in geriatrics. Again, largely, not largely, but at least partly because personally I needed to know something about geriatrics. And then after a few years, and there was no specialty in geriatrics at the time where I was practicing, but I did a lot of geriatrics. And then over time, that became less of my practice as we started hiring people who were actually trained in geriatrics. Mm -hmm. And then I took my first regional job in education as the CME director for Northern California. And that was in Oakland, which was 120 miles from where I lived and practiced. And two days a week, I was in Oakland and three days a week, I was practicing. And that became kind of an untenable thing because those are the days, and some of you will have no recollection of this, but we had paper charts. And so I found myself hauling paper charts with me to Oakland to try to do between meetings. And then I'd take meeting notes back with me to clinic to try to follow up on stuff that had come up in the meetings. And it was just kind of an impossible combination. So I, I said, something's got to change. And either I'm going to have to quit my education job, or I got to do something else clinically. And again, serendipity stepped in and a couple of nurse practitioners that I had worked with in the family medicine clinic had transferred over to the addiction medicine clinic in Sacramento a few years before. And they called me and said, we have a job for you. We just got a grant to study whether or not patients who get their primary care in the same place as their addiction medicine care do better than those who get them in separate places. And in the grant is a stipend for a part-time primary care doc we want you. And I said, first of all, never had a passion for addiction medicine. And second, how is this going to make my life, my life better? And they said, because when you're gone, we will cover for you. We'll handle your prescriptions. We'll handle your phone calls. We'll handle your patients. We'll see your patients. 
we will take care of all of those things that you've been hauling to Oakland for me. And I said, okay, it's a two-year grant. I can do it for, I mean, I spent my whole residency saying I can do anything for a month. So I could, I figured it's a two-year grant. I can do it for two years. And if I hate it after two years, I go back to doing family medicine again. And so the, the change to addiction medicine was almost purely a lifestyle issue. Once I got there, I discovered I loved it. And uh, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine recently who said, you know, when I started doing addiction medicine, I just thought it was going to be sad and awful all the time. And it's not. It's really very uplifting. And I experienced that. You don't succeed as often as you'd like to, but I didn't in family medicine either. But when you do succeed, it's, it's profound, the effect it has on, on the patients, on their family, on their whole community. And when you see how hard people fight to achieve sobriety and maintain their sobriety, even when they occasionally relapse, it's, it's a privilege to be a part of that. And so I really enjoyed doing addiction medicine and then went on to become certified in addiction medicine and for the last part of my career did mainly addiction medicine. Like what you hear on the Alliance podcast? Visit almanac.aceh.org to read the latest continuing professional development news and insights. Visit today to get informed and inspired. All right. So the clinician path, one of the things that fascinated me about it is that there, there was not just lifelong learning in a linear, in a kind of linear path, but there were these, these kind of offshoots from family medicine to geriatrics and even serendipity or, or lifestyle choice. Then there, there, there was this deep dive into addiction medicine. In the background, you recertified in family medicine. <laughs> family practice, right? So I'd like to, and this is as maybe uh, as much for my enjoyment as anyone else's, I would like to understand your journey towards recertification. Like what, what did stress start building? What was the effort that went into it? What would the cycle that you went through? How much did you really think it was supporting your practice versus how much did you believe this is just part of the regulatory external forces being placed on you? Like walk me through your experience with recertification. Sure. Well, so first of all, remember that family medicine has always required recertification. I'm not sure they even called it that back then, but since their inception in 72, they, they, they've always had time limited certificates. So in the specialty, I always knew I was going to be retaking an exam every so many years. So, and over the Obviously, over the decades, things have changed a lot in the world of recertification, and now everybody has right. you know, sort of come along, too. But for us, it was like, yeah, well, we, no big deal. We've always had to do this. That being said, the stress was enormous. And at the time, the, for family medicine, the certification period was seven years, but you could take the exam after six if for some reason you weren't going to be available the next year or you just wanted to do it early. My first recertification, I did it six years because I was so worried I wasn't going to pass. I figured if I fail that year, I'm still certified for another year. I can take it again the next year. And that was just six years out of residency. Yeah. So yep. how quickly I took a, we go from being learners to being clinicians, like oh, the idea of being a learn, like the, it, there's this odd disconnect that I think it almost is universal that like learning, being in a classroom, preparing for a test is what we had to do to get to what we want to do. And and I still remember, and I and I'm 
still upset about it, but I remember one of my attendings when I was in residency telling me that the day I graduated from residency was the smartest I was ever going to be. And I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, I got to be really smart then. And it wasn't too much longer after that, that I thought he has got to be crazy to think I was never going to get smarter because I mean, physicians and probably most adults by their very nature, we are lifelong learners. We are always having to learn something new. And that's the, you know, the exciting part, I think. And we can talk more about this later. I think the disconnect for a lot of physicians is they never connected CME to that lifelong learning. The CME was sort of a separate bucket that really was unrelated to their learning in many cases. But recertification for me was a very anxiety provoking thing. And as time went on and my career started shifting, particularly when I shifted to addiction medicine, because at the time addiction medicine was not a recognized specialty. But to be certified by the uh, the American Board of Addiction, American Society of Addiction Medicine, because there were no boards, you had to be certified in, in a primary specialty in order to, to do that. And it was important for me professionally to stay certified in addiction medicine. So I had to stay certified in family medicine. So as I got further away from family medicine and further into addiction medicine, and yet I still had to recertify in family medicine, it really got to be an anxiety-provoking thing. Um, and I, the very first year I recertified, I took a review course, but I never did again. And mostly reviewed by going over sample tests and pulling up curriculum and making sure I knew guideline, as much stuff as I possibly could. And quite fortunately, I passed every time. Um, but it was always a very uh, anxious time for me. And, and is that a matter of weeks, a matter of months? Like when do you start shifting? Into <laughs> uh, as time went on, uh, the shifting started earlier and earlier. So the last time I certified, um, I probably started six months before with, with a list of all the things I wanted to go through and try to master, become more proficient in, um, prior to when I actually took the boards. And then for the last few weeks before the boards, it was literally 24-7. You know, That's kind of what I thought about was recertification and, and um, what else I needed to do, how much more I needed to do. So th the reason why I wanted to touch on that is because that's that's the backdrop of the educator you became. Right? Yes. And, and, and in my conversation with Dave Davis and Bob Fox um, and and there'll be a, a episode soon released with Ron Severo, the, the recognition of the, the need for not only educational expertise or the educational profession, understanding planning and needs assessment and instructional design and evaluation, but the clinical context that, that these individuals operate in when they're being educated, that that the, the non-clinicians talked about how important it was to have a peer. The clinicians uh, talk about how important the two parts of their professional identity were to them. And I think that little uh, stroll down memory lane creates a, a nice backdrop for you as you're working through. So now you've moved your 10 years into your career and you're starting to take on additional uh, educational responsibilities, but still largely within systems, right? So your committee, uh, your first committee position was within that system. Um, walk me through. So what what were the responsibilities and what were some of the the trials and successes in that in that next stage when you're operating 
as an educational practitioner versus as an educational leader, a, a, a national leader? So uh, at the time, the structure of the organization was that each facility had its own CME committee. Um, and they largely ran, and we were all, every hospital was accredited, all of the hospitals in the, in the system were accredited, and so each, each hospital had its own committee, and they worked independently, and they functioned independently, and they, you know, just sort of did their own thing. We, 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 we met uh, at that point at every, every two months, um, we'd all get together in the regional offices for a day-long meeting, and where we would sort of share what we were doing, but there was no real attempt to collaborate or share information or learn from each other it was more just this is what we're doing and take it or leave it i mean here's and we had this great speaker so if you want to have a great speaker here's a great speaker to come and and you know it's needs assessment was really not part of our conversation outcomes was not part of our conversation none of the stuff that you mentioned was ever part of our conversation um but it started to become sort of and I'm not sure it was ever conscious, but maybe it was that unconscious nugget that was starting to say, an organization this size and this geographically diverse, we should be able to do better. We should be able to harness the resources that we have to do better than what we are. And that's really sort of what drove me moving into the, a brand new created regional position to start looking at those issues. Um, and it, it was still pretty nascent. There was still a, a lot that we didn't know, a lot that we still weren't talking about, but I just knew there was something better out there. And that's sort of when I first heard about the Alliance, um, was when I got to the regional office and I started getting, and I thought, wow, this sounds like, and, and sack me, sack me in the Alliance. It's like, this sounds like something that I might benefit from. Um, and, and then I think it was uh, 25 years ago, I went to my first Alliance meeting and it was, it was an eye opener for me, even though, even at that time, we still weren't talking a lot about the things that you're talking about. Um, but that's really sort of what started my trajectory of thinking about education a little differently. And then again, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from one of my mentors was if you want to really improve. Um, and look at the bigger picture. You need to start volunteering in your professional societies. You need to get involved in your professional societies. So that's when I volunteered for the California Academy of Family Physicians, what was known as their CME committee at the time. Um, and they elected me to the committee and I still am on it. <laughs> in fact, I still chair it. But, uh, and at the same time also became a surveyor for the CMA, the CME surveyor. Um, and so started working in, in organizations, uh, started going to the Alliance meetings, started establishing some relationships there, um, established it through the Alliance is when I first met some of my counterparts in other Kaiser regions. And that was pretty amazing to get together with at the time, uh, my counterpart from Southern California and my counterpart from the Northwest in Portland. And we all got together and said, we, we should talk because maybe you know, maybe we have something we can like learn from each other. Um, and, and that's really what started it, um, was those sort of meetings that happened that again, sort of make a difference and sort of make you think differently and start doing things differently. There, there's so many lessons to be learned 
about the value of lifting your head outside of the trees and looking at the forest. And I, I, I'm just struck with, you know, I'm sure there were great things going on when you were operating out of the Oakland office or when you, as the regional director, I'm sure there were good things that you guys were doing, but they, it's, it's almost like you were the Galapagos Islands and there was just all kinds of new species of educational solutions that you were coming up with and educational planning processes. Um, and then the opportunities when you look out, there's, there's like a children's book I'm thinking of and you stand on the Alliance floor and you look and there's like, that person's like me. And that person's like me and that person's like me and and I'm not alone. And and there's just things that I can learn from people. And so often when you get to the top of your silo, you find you either find comfort in in this turf, uh, uh, this kind of uh, turf that you've created. It's it's your area and you run it and there's comfort there. Um, but there's there's rarely growth there, and when you start to look out, does that does that kind of sense? Absolutely, and I and it is so hard when you are really paddling as fast as you can just to keep things going in your own little forest to take the time to step back and look at the trees, and and it's also a little overwhelming because when you do that, it's like oh my god, I'm I can never do all of those things. I mean, it's just I, I I'm just trying to keep the paperwork together, and yet now you're talking about instructional design and faculty development, and I I can't do that, so I'm just going to bury my head again. So you're right. So the temptation is always there to even when you see the trees to quickly dive back down in the forest because it is comfortable. And one of my, the same mentor that suggested I go get involved in other things also told me one time, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think that really speaks to the importance of when you go out and you look at the trees and you meet other people and you say, if they can do it, I can do it too. And how did you do it, by the way? In fact, I remember the first time I met Dave Davis and we got to talking and, you know, how can you not love Dave? But I was struck by how closely our careers mimicked each other, aligned. And I thought, here's a physician, here's a family doc who has become really such an eminent person in this field. I could do this. I can do that too. I mean, I'm not going to become an eminent person, but I can at least do more than what I'm doing. And I can, I can promote things and I can change things and I can, you know, try to make things better, but it's, uh, but it's tough to do. And it really is getting outside your comfort zone. You mentioned SACME. You know, I, my career has taught me that the there are individuals within academic medical centers who see a, a world that think that that really prepares clinicians for the future, and that they have structure in place, and that there's a, a prioritization or a prestige even in some CME offices within academic medical centers, and and it's it's on the same level as some of the clinical departments. And there's, there's, like a, there's an understanding of the importance of education within the overall structure. It's part of their mission. And then there's others where those CME offices are still operating, you know, with a, an assistant dean who's got six other roles and a business manager, an office manager, and they're right next to the cafeteria in the basement. 
And then there's the healthcare and hospital systems. And I think you just painted a really clear picture of them, like the amount of things they need to do just to operationalize what they're trying to do. And maybe the the idea of national networking or scholarly pursuits or publications or rigor in design and evaluation just isn't possible given the how quickly the cogs in the wheel turn. And And so if you had never gotten your head out of that silo, out of that office, out of that desk, then the community would have lost because of all the, the all you've you know provided us. But there's such an important story there. Initial thoughts to that, like it, you 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 mentioned quite humbly, kind of tongue in cheek, that being eminent is something that Dave can do. But you could probably get there. Dave never got in his career. He was never trapped in a silo. Like from that first time where he realized that medical education is going to be part of his career, he was part of the Canadian healthcare system and immediately, as I understand it, had access to see the big picture. And in many ways, years and years went by where you were focused on on operating an education office within a system. Right. Fair? Absolutely fair. And thank you for the compliment. I think the I have benefited tremendously because I was able to step out of that silo. And I think, you know, in systems, it's really tough sometimes because there is, there's sometimes that, that feeling of proprietary interest. You know, if we come up with something really great, I don't want to tell anybody about it because I want to keep it for myself. I know. I, you know, I still remember back to many years ago, a commercial for Mercedes of all things, where some probably the CEO of Mercedes is being interviewed and they said, you know, you came up with all these safety innovations, but instead of patenting them, you made them available to everybody. Why would you do that? And he said, why wouldn't I want everybody to be safer? And I thought, okay, got it. Good for you. And so there's that fine line of how do we share and yet how do we keep our competitive advantage? And, you know, I kind of threw out the competitive advantage long ago, but that's, you know, that's me. But, but I remember being struck by a couple of years ago at the Alliance meeting, David Ash did a, a keynote presentation. And afterwards I did a little sort of summary of what he did. But I remember he asked a question, and I, which I included in mine and did a poll of the audience. And the question was, what business are we in? And your choice was, are we in the education business? Are we in the behavior change business? Are we in the improving healthcare business? Or are we in the improving health business? And I thought, these are my colleagues. They're all going to vote for at least behavior change, if not higher levels than that. And of course, 100% of, of course, we're all in the education business. But once you got to behavior change, it was way smaller. And then improving healthcare got even smaller. And improving health was like negligible. And I, I, I was, I was kind of stunned by that. And I remember having conversations with some people after that who I had known for years who I had talked to at the Alliance meetings for years. And they were, it was like the light bulb had gone off. And they went, I, I never thought about that we're actually in the behavior change business or we're actually in the improving health business. And I'm thinking, well, good for you that the light went off. And I guess you heard this now 18 times or whatever it takes to really sink in. But you know, it hearkened back to me this whole thing about that physicians don't really see CME as being part of their growth 
it's something they have to do for licensure, for accreditation, for certification, for whatever it is. But, but that's separate from what they do to learn. And I think that we have been participants in that by not giving them what they need to actually help them in their practice. And if we can start doing that and we can start shifting the culture where people, where physicians actually start seeing CME as being a valuable asset to their career, I think things will be a lot easier. And part of that is we all need to realize we are in the behavior change business. We are in the improving healthcare business. That's why we should exist. Your comment earlier about if you can see it, you can be it. An early mentor of mine said, the first business he started, his goal was to make $500,000 a year. And about two years later, he made $500,000 a year and he was thrilled with himself. And then he met somebody who said the first business he started, his goal was to make $5 million a year. And within two years, he made $5 million. And so he sat back. He's like, okay, I'm going to start a business and my goal is going to make $10 million. Like, not to get into like the tyranny of metrics and stuff, but if you have the perspective to see what is the ultimate goal of of your profession, of your career, of your week, of your day, of a meeting, and you prepare with that end in mind, you can see it and then you can eventually be it. And it is, it's so critical. I wish maybe as much as anything else, I think that's a theme of all of these interviews is just individuals from humble beginnings or with a focus here in clinical practice or a focus on just how adults learn. Ron Severo's focus was health literacy or just adult literacy and eventually became education and eventually became continuing education. I think the more perspective we gain, the more cases we can see, the more mentors we can create, the better we are. Being an Alliance member has its perks. From discounts to industry-leading events like the Alliance Annual Conference, to members-only access to the Alliance Learning Center, the Alliance is where healthcare CE professionals come to learn. Visit acehp.org membership to join today. I want to use that as a segue to the last 15 years. And so I hope you saw this as a compliment I referred to you in some of our correspondence going back over the last week as a Jill of all trades. And I, in many ways, while I wish you could have got your head out of the silo 10 years earlier, I think the fact that your head was in the silo for 10 years, you started to develop a keen awareness of what wasn't working with educational planning and what wasn't working with instructional design and what wasn't working with program planning and what wasn't working with evaluations. And so I now look and your CV is fascinating, by the way. I look at the 304 presentations you've given in your career and the multiple publications and the multiple awards that you've won. And there is a pivot, a pretty clear pivot about 15, year, 15 20 years ago, where shortly after you recognized the Alliance was a place of use that had people you could learn from, it seems to me, and I know you still had the day job and you're still practicing in addiction medicine and stuff, but it seems to me like you're, you started to make an impact on this national scale. And so can we kind of talk through how all of your years in the grind in education, in the system, prepared you to have so many 
lessons to share in the at a national audience? Well, I think that having that experience of being in, as you say, the grind for so many years, I am fully aware of how challenging it is in a small office with limited resources when you have multiple responsibilities to be able to actually think more broadly. And we used to laugh that my needs assessment for this presentation is I have a gap to fill in my calendar. And that's the need. And so I think that you know, having that experience of living in that world and understanding what that's like, it sort of gives a person truly a, a sense of what that's like to work in that kind of a system. And again, sort of, if you can see it, you can be it. I've been there. I've done that. And I, I recognize you have to do that. But if once or twice a year to start with, if you can step outside that and do something different and think about providing something to physicians that would give them value, then you create this, you start creating that snowball that will gradually start building speed and eventually everybody will come on board. And it hasn't gone as fast as I hoped it would, but I think, you know, trying to be realistic about we're not going to change the world in a day and we're not going to, you're not going to start creating fabulous educational opportunities, you know, five days a week tomorrow, but we got to start somewhere. So if you start small and create manageable goals, then we can start making that change. We can start being the change we wish to see and which will start creating that change. So I think that helped a lot. And you're right, I wish I'd started coming to that realization 10 years earlier, but I didn't. And that's okay too. If you would have popped your head out earlier and moved to the national scene earlier, you would have had all that experience that you shared. And I feel like more so than maybe any of the, the, the folks that I admire in this profession, it's not a research project or a question that you chose to answer. It's a life's experience that you chose to share. And we've, as a community, benefited from that amazingly. Well, thank you. And I think of myself as being mostly practical. So because I've lived it, you know, I, and now I, I do know at least some of the theory and understand the theory, but I also understand the practical considerations. And so for me, that's true as a clinician, as well as as an educator, is let's look at the real world and let's figure out, given the real world that we live in, what's going to be the best way to work with this patient? What's going to be the best way to work with education? Because theory is wonderful, but if you can't figure out a way to apply it, it's just theory. And so you, you have to be able to merge that practical with the theoretical in order to move and to improve. Before we end, and again, a question that's not always easy for people to be so reflective on their career. So I'll, I'll position it this way. What are the skills or what are the necessary steps that our community members need to evolve? Like given what you've learned, if, if somehow you could bake it all down, reduce it all down to like two or three things that have made you successful. <laughs> yeah, two or three things. So for me, I guess the part of the fundamental, what's the problem I'm trying to fix, which is sort of the needs assessment, how I always describe needs assessment to my colleagues. In education, The so one of the first things I learned is that, and I wish, again, maybe I, and you're right, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I'm glad I didn't learn it any sooner, is that being a good clinician doesn't make you a good educator necessarily. 
and that there is an art and a science to education and harnessing both of those things just like the art and science of medicine creates a much better experience than just one or the other and that there is a huge community of people out there who are all working towards the same goal and if we work together learn together we can all do much better i have always been a believer and all of my colleagues have heard me say this a million times two heads are better than one and three are probably better than two and at some point you reach critical mass i mean you, that it's really not better to get more but i i think that if we can create the opportunities for people to to talk to share to ask those questions to again hear that one conversation that triggers that aha moment and we've all had those aha moments and if we can create the opportunities for those aha moments for people which includes how do i use this information then i think we can continue our journey i mean the the CME community, the education community, has made enormous changes over my career. I mean, I, as we were preparing for this, I'm thinking back to how things, how were things 30 years ago. Boy, they're way different now and way better now. And 30 years from now, they're going to be even better. But that's because people like you, people like the people you're interviewing, people like all the people out there in the community are asking those questions and trying to figure things out and sharing both our successes and our failures and moving on from that and constantly trying to improve. I'll close with this. I think there, for those folks who've listened to a few episodes, there's probably a drinking game that they could play. <laughs> if they can find an episode in which serendipity has not been a theme, I would be shocked. I, I, I think I, I can't think of an episode in which we have someone's career has not been impacted. And I just want to leave with that thought that serendipity is only great if you're willing to notice it. Yeah, I, 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 people ask me about how I planned my career and I have to laugh and say, I, I took the Yogi Berra approach to my career. I came to a fork in the road and I took it. Um, and so part of it, you're absolutely right. Part of it was I had opportunities and the other part is I then took advantage of those opportunities. And you have to, you, the opportunities are out there. You have to be willing to take a risk. Dr. Havens, thank you very much for spending time with me. Brian, thanks so much. This has been great. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Alliance podcast, Continuing Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay updated on future releases. In the meantime, we invite you to access our wealth of continuing professional development content on the Almanac at almanac.acehp.org. Until next time.